Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's turn to Jared Woodard, shall we? Bank of America Securities Head of Research Investment Committee. Jared, always great to catch up with you. Mohamed Alarian writing in the FT this morning, the inherent instability of the Goldilocks market consensus. Do you think that outlook, that nice Goldilocks outlook that many people have, Jared, do you think that is unstable? Well, uh, thanks, John. First of all, I think that Mohamed may be uh, hoping for a consensus where I certainly don't see one. I mean, it, thinking about investor uh, uh, comments and questions this year have been entirely dominated by fears about things getting too hot, too much stimulus, too much, you know, central bank easing. Is the is the reopening happening too quickly, you know, for for uh, for markets? I mean, these have been the questions that have been constantly put to us. And I think that the 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 truth is, as you, as you guys were joking at the beginning of the segment, you know, the markets have digested all of this incredibly well. You know, the VIX is at, at you know sixteen, not thirty, and and uh, so. The, the 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 big takeaway for us is that in, in fact the most contrarian view I think that the most uh, out of consensus thought right now is that things might actually continue to go well you may even start to see uh, some deflationary forces kind of work their way back into the system in the second half of this year and the start of next year. Jared, what percentage of long only buy side the more traditional investment is off their bogey? If they're tight R squared to the market, they want to be like the S and P five hundred, even if they're removed from it on the edge of hedge fund. How many people are behind right now? Uh, I think a lot of people have uh, gotten positioned for for reopening from reflation. They've gotten into some of these value trades, some of the cyclical sectors, especially financials and and uh, um, energy materials a little bit, um, but they're not completely off sides. In fact, in, in most of our measures, our internal you know, proprietary measures suggest that investors have pulled back in positioning um, over the last several weeks. They're, they're you know, somewhere closer to neutral uh, from much more aggressive levels earlier this year. So I think that the, the, the fear of you know, aggressive investor positioning, that people are overly exuberant about the market, um, and that's gonna give us you know, some yeah. kind of volatility I think that might be a little bit misplaced here. Lisa, this is incredibly important in that the behavior wrapped around all this blah, blah, blah we do is critical. And as Mr. Woodard says there, people aren't, on, aren't on board the bull market enthusiasm. And you can see this particularly in the bond market, right? The fact that we did get that bid into the long end. We do see a flattening yield curve. And Jared, do you think that the bond market and the message there that is a lot less bullish than the message from equities is translating into the equities? Have we seen the full play out of a less less inflationary reality within the equity spectrum. No, I think I think at least it's exactly in the equity market where you'll see, you know, the biggest potential change over the, the second half of this year. You know, if it's true, you know, our economists have been suggesting, for example, you know, you could see uh, some downward pressure on price indexes from goods uh, as people shift from goods to services uh, as September you know, unemployment benefits expire and, and all the kind of consumer behavior changes into this fall. You could start to see um, some of these these short-term price pressures actually moderate in the way that economists and Fed officials have been promising for some time. People a few months ago were, you know, terrified of of the cost of lumber. You can't go to the store and buy, you know, buy some plywood. Well, lumber has fallen 50% from its peak. Um, and so none of these, you know, uh, disinflationary or even just return to normalcy 
um, sort of economic pressures, I think, are factored into the equity market. Today, people are still you know, on one side in terms of the reflation trade, uh, a much more balanced portfolio, which is what we've been recommending uh, for, for a while, um, I think is going to suit investors better as reopening re becomes normalcy in the economic market and, and in financial markets. Jared, always sharp. Super smart. It's good to hear from you. Jared Wooded there, Bank of America Securities Head of Research Investment Committee. When you go all Fabozzi, you learn that there's a complexity here, John. John, it's just not a simple yield down, uh, price up kind of analysis. There's some real complexity. Well, let's talk about that complexity now. Vishy Tripachur joins us, Morgan Stanley Head of Fixed Income Research. And Vishy, let's start with just a simple one. The headline from your research, credit is vulnerable to a negative surprise. How so, Vishy? Basically, the valuations in credit have gotten so tight that there is not a lot of room there's not a lot of buffer uh, for uh, for any change in the the Fed's response function. Uh, if we have a any change in the expectations about the liquidity backdrop that the Fed has been providing for for a long time now, and any of those kinds of that uh, a hawkish tilt from the Fed, uh, we think is going to be negative for credit. Vishy, what do you say to people that think there's a massive put here from the Fed in credit at the moment? that we can't have wider spreads because the Fed is there to back things up. I, I, I think there is, we can think of that there is a, a, a Fed put, but it's, I would, since you put it in that language, I would say that put is significantly out of the money put. You need to see, a you know, the put is not, it's not an at the money put. So you need a substantial dislocation in the credit markets to occur before the put can come in. Um, so it's not a it's not that uh, we'll, we won't see, um, you know, 15, 20 basis point widening um, and that the, the Fed put becomes functional. It, you need to see the order of magnitude of what we saw in March of last year, that level of dislocation in the market. You know, companies, high quality companies losing access to uh, to the credit markets. Those types of dislocations would, you can conceivably imagine Fed stepping in, but not for a, a 15, 20, you know, sort of a more, uh, you know, 20, 25 basis point type move in, in investment grade spreads. Vishy, your projection here has a pretty profound implication. That is that perhaps credit spread trades more in tandem with Fed policy than actual credit worthiness of companies. In the past, these were two distinct issues where typically when the economy was getting better, credit would do better. The spreads would actually come in because these companies had a better chance of doing well in that economy and paying back their debt. Have we moved to an area where credit does not necessarily track the ability for a company to pay back its money, its, its, its borrowings? I would. I want to. I think it's good to distinguish between what's happening in the high-quality investment-grade credit versus high-yield uh, high credit here. I think what you just said is probably more true for the high-yield company companies. But investment-grade credit is really at pretty much historical tights at this point, and the credit market has been a. a substantial beneficiary of the of quantitative easing uh, and the low rates um, and any change to that we think there is not enough of a buffer in terms of spreads for the credit markets to absorb not so much when you look at the um, high yield there is some buffer there 
for that to happen. So as the economy gets better, the prospects for there is still some prospects for high yield low high yield bonds and leverage loans to get tighter, but that room for tightening is simply not there uh, in investment grade. Therefore, what we see is this. Um, uh, the, the situation where there's a clear difference between um, high yield and investment rate. This is actually a fascinating discussion and highlights why so many investment managers prefer high yield, even though it's known as riskier to investment grade right now. Vishy, can you walk us through the pathway of transmission, the idea here of if the Fed does get more hawkish, does that mean higher benchmark yields, higher spreads or wider spreads, and then all-in losses that are really substantial? Is that what you're projecting here? Actually, I'm not suggesting any all-in credit losses. We're not suggesting a, a default will pick up. We are, what we are suggesting is the compensation for in, investment grade, the, uh, the spread is a compensation for taking out that credit risk. It, it's the, if, you, it's, it, if you look at, can it get tighter as the economy gets better? Can the markets actually accept lower compensation for taking on investment grade credit? Um, that's that, that it's really not that much a scope there. On the other hand, if the economy, if the rates get higher, the uh, amount of liquidity in the market uh, eases somewhat, um, could they get wider? Um, we think that the, very much the case that they could get wider without affecting the overall default rate. Vishy, in, in the- fact, we think defaults will go down. In the equity market, and I want to pick up on that theme in just a moment, in the equity market, when you bring up the prospect of exuberance and bubbles, people always benchmark it to what happened in 2000 and say, well, it's nothing like then, so there's nothing to worry about now. In the credit market, they'll look at spreads and say things are tight, but they're the tightest since 2007, and this is not 2007. Could you do me a favour? Can you adjust where spreads are at the moment for quality, for duration, and give me a better picture of the parallel between now and 07? Right, we do that, and my, my colleagues uh, just recently published a piece just addressing that. So adjusting for uh, for everything, we still think we are at pretty close to taking all of those factors into account. Um, you are at all-time tights in investment grade, not so much in high yield. There is a substantial room in high yield, roughly 100 basis points in terms of adjusted spreads in high yield, uh, high yield bonds. But in investment grade, we are through the tights of 2007. All-time tights on IG, potentially. Right. Vishy, unreal. Good to catch up. Vishy Thripatur, Morgan Stanley, head of fixed income research on a bit of a clinic, Tom, and what's happening in the credit market at the moment. Let's save ourselves with Seema Shah here. June 30, 2021. Seema Shah with Principal uh, Global. Seema, what did you change in your mid-year outlook? Hi, Tom. Um, in terms of the changes, you know, I think that how we started the year isn't too different. You know, we, we came in, I think most people are expecting inflation to pick up. Um, we we had a timeline for tapering. I don't think anything has changed yet. Um, if anything, the, the summer is going to be a little bit more difficult. With I think we should see a bit more volatility. I think there's a lot of vulnerabilities in the market. Uh, but we're still holding on to our 10-year uh, target of around 185 by the end of the year, and, and I don't think much has changed on that. This goes to the quote from Peter Chir of Academy. I'll be catching up with him in an hour or oh, so. Thank you for promoting that. Take some gains, reduce risk, and enjoy a few weeks with less stress. Do you agree with that, mm -hmm. Seema? Well, I think the thing is, is that for investors, they need to look through some of the noise um, over the coming months. You know, there isn't too much to be worried about if you're looking at taking a six month to one year view. Uh, there is still a strong economic recovery underway. Uh, you may get a few concerns around the Fed, concerns about inflation. And given how expensive 
equities are, you know, there's certainly vulnerability for a bit of a, a bit of a kind of a tumble here and there. Uh, but the long-term view is, is certainly continued strength in equity markets. And many people believe continued strength in cyclicals as well. And Seema, it continues to be an either-or. Cyclicals, value or growth, which basically for many people comes down to big tech, energy or financials. Take your pick on a sector. That's your style, your factor. And I'm trying to understand, Seema, can you envision a scenario where the S&P 500 just finishes the year lower from where we are right now? I mean, look, I think it's entirely possible um, and this is one of the reasons why I think increasingly investors need to look under the surface, start thinking about the sectors of companies that you're looking at. And the reason for that is that, look, you know, we still have a generally positive long-term view for secular growth stocks, right? So essentially technology. But if you get to a point where cyclicals start doing really well and you have the yield curve once again steepening or just generally yield rising, then tech gets into a bit of difficulty. And given it's waiting in, in the S&P 500, that is a possibility that you have a lower S&P 500, even a really strong growth environment where cyclicals do well. So this is the time that investors need to really understand, not just look at the index, but look at the various sectors that they're investing in. Seema, on a broader level, I'm wondering, to Mohamed Alarian's point, do you see Goldilocks being a perilous zone to be in, that it has an expiration date, uh, that at one point, one thing will have to break, either inflation will either have to break out too high or the credit cycle will have to start rolling over? Well, I think with his point, it was interesting in that, you know, I, I kind of disagree. I feel like people have become more and more aware of the very ri various risks. Um, we have clients asking us, how do we add inflation protection to our portfolio? So I think there is a, a recognition that there are many different risks out there at the moment. But I think the really interesting part of Valerian's um, comments were about the very structural changes that are taking place in the economy, which may certainly end up in slightly higher inflation than we've had in the last decade. Things like the supply chains, how are people, um, how are various companies thinking about their inventories? Um, just even with regards to central banks, the way that they're reviewing inflation, these are fundamental changes which are going to take some time to play out. And I think that's where we need a bit more focus on the time. How do they weigh into your investment thesis? In other words, how do you price in the very specific inflationary pressures of this modern era? Yeah, so we still think that, look, you know, we do have elevated inflation. And even after this, you know, the so-called transitory effect fades out, we still think we'll have inflation higher than what we've had over the last decade. Not a worrying high, but certainly around that 2 to 2.5% level. Um, and in the me medium term, when we have elevated inflation, investors need to have that inflation protection. Um, you know, we can talk about mining, we talk about cyclicals, but actually the, the best area to be, have that protection is within real estate because you don't suffer that volatility and as long as it's accompanied by a strong growth environment, real estate tends to do better in these kinds of environments. So that's where our, um, our favorite pick is for this inflation environment. What do you do on a strategy basis with profitable technology companies? So we have actually maintained an overweight to tech. And there's a couple of reasons. One is that, you know, from a long-term basis, these companies, they have this strong cash flow. They have the balance sheet. Um, and they are where... Most companies, if they can survive over this difficult period last year and this year, probably next year, they need to use technology to pivot their business model. So tech is not going away. The other thing is, is that it's a defensive trade. You know, when we have concerns about um, hawkish Fed growth outlook, tech tends to do well, just as we're seeing over the last few weeks. So to us, to us, it makes sense to have that as a defensive portion within your portfolio and hold it through the long term. Uh, the key risk is obviously regulation, but as you we were discussing before, um, tech seems to be able to deal with those kind of pressures. Asima, can I get everything you just said by just owning the index? That's a really good question. 
sorry, I misheard that. What was that? Can I get everything you've just said in the last 10 minutes by just owning the index, owning the S&P 500? I, no, I think you need to, you really need to actively look at what you're investing in. You know, there's going to be some cyclical sectors that do well. You need to have a little bit of value and a little bit of growth. But you absolutely need to pick well. Because over the coming months, as the reflation trade um, becomes, I, I remember one of the years before saying, uh, becomes a bit more normal, some of those companies are not going to do as well as they've been enjoying over the last few months. So we need to be a little bit more cognizant, be a bit more active in the way that investors are looking at things. Seema, thank you. It's good to hear from you. Seema Shah there, Principal Global Investors Chief Strategist. Right now, he is from the 6th District, Lexington, Kentucky. It must be a Republican. We know that. Andrew Barr joins us, Andy Barr. And what Andy Barr knows is the Fayette County Board of Elections is run a little bit better than the New York City uh, Board of Elections. They can count the votes uh, down there. Andy, to go to the votes in your election, you're not a borderline congressman. You won 57.3% to 41% for the evil Democrat. What do the Republicans need to do right now that are in much tighter districts to make 2022 a good outcome? I think we need to address the concerns of the American people. You just were talking about the labor shortage crisis in the country, concerns about inflation. These are real. Uh, the Fed says and Janet Yellen say that it's transitory. I'm not so sure. Uh, when you talk to the home builders, when you talk to people who have to purchase the lumber and the steel, and you, you talk to um, the restaurateurs who are buying food and the trucking companies that are dealing with higher fuel costs, inflation is real and it's a crisis. So I think speaking to those basic pockets pocketbook concerns of the American people is what's going to uh, deliver uh, the majority back to us. But it's not about the politics. It's about solving these problems. And, and we do have challenges facing us in the country. What should Jerome Powell do in his policy? Should he address Lexington, Kentucky, or should he address something like New York City? He's got to address us all. How does he do that? Well, I think what the Fed should be doing is listening to Robert Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Fed, who has been the most hawkish on this inflation question. And uh, to his credit, Chairman Powell has encouraged um, uh, these dissenting voices to talk about uh, the real issue of inflation. And, and we do not need to be buying $40 billion a month in mortgage-backed securities with home prices going through the roof. Uh, this is fuel to what could be another uh, bubble. And we need to watch and guard against that. Look. We've had historic levels of monetary and fiscal stimulus pushed into this economy. Uh, we are in recovery, uh, but this is fueling uh, a, a potential asset bubble uh, that could create uh, major problems going forward. And we don't need a situation where the Fed is forced to slam on the brakes and, and push us into a recession. Congressman, uh, let's talk about the infrastructure spending plan, the $579 billion uh, bipartisan deal that was struck. At what point would you be willing to sign off on that, even if there were a reconciliation bill uh, that was sort of attached to it, the Democrats were pushing through? Do you have a price tag on how high you would be willing to accept uh, for that bill? It's not as much about a specific price tag, Lisa. It's more about uh, are we focused on core real infrastructure? And we're not tying it to an unrelated um, Green New Deal or social spending agenda that has nothing to do with the needs of the country. Look, we need uh, a bipartisan deal to rebuild our country's infrastructure. Look no further than 75 miles north of my home district in Lexington, Kentucky. You see the Brent Spence Bridge falling into the Ohio River. This is a major source 
source of interstate commerce tying Detroit to Tampa through Cincinnati and northern Kentucky. This is a, a critical infrastructure project, but there's more of these all around the country, <clears throat> and we need to rebuild our country's infrastructure for growth, for safety, uh, for uh, the efficiency of our economy and productivity. But the key is, are we going to do so the right way? Are we going to do so, so through streamlining permitting and regulatory reform and slashing red tape, which would save $3.7 trillion? Uh, are we going to do it through private capital as opposed to imposing huge new taxes on the American people that would make us uncompetitive and uh, force U.S. corporations to uh, move towards inversions again and move capital yeah. and jobs overseas? That's the question. What does it look like, and is it really a focused on core infrastructure? Congressman, would you be willing to sign off on the $579 billion plan, regardless of what happens elsewhere, because of the need that you were talking about to rebuild some of those bridges and roads? Yeah, it, the bipartisan deal struck in the Senate looks good. But what, what was very discouraging is when President Biden, I think forced by, his hand was forced by the, the extreme far left and the progressives to tie it to this reconciliation bill that would massively expand the welfare state. I think him walking that back gives us more hope. Um, but look, the Democrats are having a really hard time around, right now internally deciding what it is that they, they, but, they can but do. But Congressman, um, would you sign off on the 579? billion dollar plan regardless of what happens on the other side. Yeah, I, I, I've looked at the, the over the, the kind of the broad parameters, and it looks positive, much better than what, where the administration started. So the details have not, have yet to be put into a bill. So I would want to see that before I would commit to it. But yes, certainly, this is much closer to or in the ballpark, if you will, than what we were seeing earlier from the administration, and untethering it from all of the other um, uh, far left wing agenda is is is. It gives us hope that there can be a bipartisan agreement. I would be surprised if we got there until the fall uh, because of the demands of, uh, uh, of the far left in the, the House. And, uh, you know, the president can show some real leadership here uh, by uh, pushing Speaker Pelosi to abandon the far left fringe of the party and come to the center and really focus on core infrastructure as opposed to the Green New Deal or some of these other social spending priorities of the, of the, of the Democratic Party. Congressman, always appreciate your time. Let's catch up again soon. Congressman Andy Barr there of Kentucky. Thank you. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.